Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Good morning, Grantham Church. Thanks for joining us in worship. This is the fourth Sunday of Lent, and we are in our Lenten series, Seeking God's Ways. We are exploring the higher ways of God. According to Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we want to understand God's ways so that we might repent of our own way, believe in the gospel, and follow the way of Christ as we welcome more of his kingdom upon the earth. If you've missed any of the messages in our series so far, you can access those online at grantthechurch.org or via our podcast. So far, we've looked at how God calls us to move from security to generosity, from fear to compassion, and from earning to receiving. And now in message four of six, we are being invited to move from exceptionalism to inclusion. If you look at your bulletin, there's a summary of the sermon there. It says, as we seek God's higher ways, we discover that the restoration of sinners and of sinful society comes through a radical embodiment of the gospel of grace and a kindness that leads to repentance rather than withholding our love and acceptance or excluding people from the community. And so in this message, we're going to consider how God wants to move us away from the conditions that create exceptionalism so that we might welcome and include everyone into the kingdom the way that Jesus does. Would you pray with me? Father, help us now to open our hearts to you. Lord, we want to be moldable clay in your hands. We want to be holy vessels consecrated for your service. Jesus, we confess our need for you and your way. Our way gets us into trouble. Holy Spirit, as we listen, help us to hear your voice over all other voices. Convict, comfort, and give us courage to embrace the higher ways of God so we might live into the fullness of the life Jesus lived and promised to those who accept and then obey his word. And all God's people said, amen. Would you grab your Bible and turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 15? Luke chapter 15. We're going to read the entire chapter, but I think you'll see why. 
Would you please stand with me in the reading of the scriptures? Luke 15, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and have stayed away. Verse eight, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she'll call on her friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there's joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Verse 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of the estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants had enough food to spare, and here I'm dying of hunger. I will go to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love, and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house, put it on him, get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants, what was going on? Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf 
We are celebrating because of his safe return. And the older brother was angry, and he wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. And his father said to him, look, dear son, you've always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and he's come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. This is the word of the Lord. Speak to God, you may be seated. Some of you recall we had Tony Campolo here with us a few years ago. Uh, Tony is a sociologist, was a sociologist at Eastern University, uh, spiritual advisor to one of the presidents, um, author, passionate storyteller, and preacher. Uh, like Jesus, Tony can really tell some stories, can't he? Some of you know Tony. I've never forgotten one of them, and it's a true story. Some years ago, Tony flew to Hawaii to speak at a conference. He shows up, he checks into his hotel and tries to get some sleep. Unfortunately, his in internal clock wakes him up at three in the morning. The night is dark, the streets are silent, the world is asleep, but Tony is wide awake and he's hungry. He gets up, he walks the streets looking for a place to get some bacon and eggs for an early breakfast. Everything is closed except a, a grungy dive in an alley. He goes in, he sits down at the counter. A rather large guy behind the counter comes over and asks, what do you want? Well, Tony isn't so hungry anymore. So I and some donuts under a plastic cover, he says, I'll have a donut and black coffee. And he sits there eating on his donut and sipping his coffee at 3.30, in walk eight or nine, provocative, loud prostitutes just finished with their night's work. They plop down at the counter. Tony finds himself uncomfortably surrounded by this group of smoking, swearing hookers. He gulps his coffee, planning to make a quick getaway. Then the woman next to him says to her friend, you know what, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm gonna be 39. To which her friend nastily replies, so what do you want from me? A birthday party? Ha! Huh. You, want, you want me to get you a cake and sing happy birthday to you? The first woman says, oh, come on. Why do you have to be so mean? Why do you have to put me down? I'm just saying it's my birthday. I don't, I don't want anything from you. I mean, why should I have a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why should I have one now? Well, when Tony heard that, he said he made a decision. He sat and waited until the woman left and all of the women left, and he asked the guy at the counter, do they come in here every night? Yeah, he answered. The one right next to me, he asked, she come in every night? Yeah, he said, that's Agnes. 
Yeah, she's here every night. She's been coming here for years. What do you want to know? Because she just said that tomorrow is her birthday. What do you think? Do you think we could maybe throw a little birthday party for her right here in the diner? A cute kind of smile crept over the man's chubby cheeks. That's great, he says. Yeah, that's great. I like it. He turns to the kitchen, shouts to his wife, hey, come on out here. This guy's got a great idea. Tomorrow's Agnes's birthday and he wants to throw a party for her right here. His wife comes out. She says, that's terrific. You know, Agnes, is, she's really nice. She's always trying to help other people. Nobody does anything nice for her. So they make plans. Tony says he'll be back at 2.30 the next morning with some decorations. And the man whose name turns out to be Harry says he'll make a cake. At 2.30 the next morning, Tony is back. He has crepe paper, other decorations, and a sign made of big pieces of cardboard that says, Happy Birthday, Agnes. They decorate the place from one end to the other and get it looking great. Here he had gotten the word out on the streets about the party, and by 3.15 it seemed that every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. There were hookers wall to wall, Tony says. At 3.30 on the dot, the door swings open. In walks Agnes and her friend. Tony has everybody ready. They all shout and scream, Happy birthday, Agnes! And Agnes is absolutely flabbergasted. She's stunned. Her mouth falls open. Her knees started to buckle. And she almost falls over. And when the birthday cake with all the candles is carried out, that's when she totally loses it. Now she's sobbing and crying. Harry, who's not used to seeing a prostitute cry, gruffly mumbles, blow out the candles, Agnes, cut the cake. So she pulls herself together, blows them out, everyone cheers and yells. Cut the cake, Agnes, cut the cake. But Agnes looks down at the cake and without taking her eyes off of it, slowly and softly says, look, Harry, is it all right with you if, if I mean, if I don't, I, I mean, what if... What I want to ask is, is it okay if I keep the cake a little while? Is it all right if we don't eat it right away? Harry doesn't know what to say, so he shrugs and says, sure, if that's what you want to do, keep the cake. Take it home if you want. Oh, could I, she asks. Looking at Tony, she says, I, I live just down the street a couple of doors. I want to take the cake home. Is that okay? I'll be right back, honest. So she gets off her stool, she picks up the cake, carries it high in front of her like it was the Holy Grail. Everybody watches in stunned silence and when the door closes behind her, nobody seems to know what to do. They look at each other, they look at Tony. So Tony gets up on a chair and says, what do you say that we pray together? And there they are in a hole in the wall, greasy spoon, half the prostitutes in Honolulu at 3.30 a.m listening to Tony Campolo as he prays for Agnes, for her life, her health, and her salvation. Tony recalls, I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her. When he's finished, Harry leans over and with a trace of hostility in his voice, he says, hey, you never told me you was a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to anyway? In one of those best moments, the right words come to Tony and he answers quietly. I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. 
Harry thinks for a moment and in a mocking way says, no you don't. There ain't no church like that because if there was, I'd join it. Yeah, I'd join a church like that. Brothers and sisters, that is in fact the church that Jesus wants. Amen? For it's the example he left us on the way to the cross. Luke chapter 5, verse 30 and 32, earlier in Luke's gospel, he reports this. He says, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belong to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Think about this is reflective of the attitude and the accusations that prompted Jesus to share the three parables we read in Luke 15, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So who are the sinners in Jesus' day? Mike Bird in the Dictionary of Jesus in the Gospel says this on the topic. In many cases, sin and sinner were freighted terms within Jewish sectarianism and were deployed in order to denounce or exclude persons for behavior that did not meet the perceived norms of certain Jewish factions. Jesus entered the conversation about what conduct and what persons were deemed unacceptable to God. Jesus' statements on this topic appear to represent a controversial challenge to the dominating views of the day about sinners. According to Jesus, it is the restoration of sinners through repentance rather than the exclusion of sinners from communal life that is God's intended purpose for sinners. And so Bird says, Jesus was more critical of those who dismissed the sinners than of the sinners themselves because he saw in the efforts to marginalize persons a way of life that competed with his own message of the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus' ministry leveled the playing field. All are actually sinners. And so all need to repent and turn from their ways to the higher ways of God. All are being included except for those who self-exclude themselves. Listen to me. How do we self-exclude ourselves? Well, like the hypocritical religious leaders, it happens when we refuse to humble ourselves and respond to God's offer of grace. When we refuse his invitation to be freed from our idols and all of our identities of the flesh. When we refuse to turn from our ways and from the spirit of the age and come to God for forgiveness, restoration, and new life, we self-exclude ourselves. The Croatian theologian and author Miroslav Volf says it like this, it would be a mistake to conclude from Jesus' compassion toward those who transgressed social boundaries that his mission was merely to demask the mechanisms that created sinners by falsely ascribing sinfulness to those who were considered socially unacceptable. He was no prophet of inclusion, listen to this, for whom the chief virtue was acceptance and the cardinal vice intolerance. Instead, he was a bringer of grace who not only scandalously included anyone in the fellowship of open commensality, that is eating with sinners, 
but made the intolerant demand of repentance and the condescending offer of forgiveness. Wolf goes on to say, the mission of Jesus consisted not simply of renaming the behavior that was falsely labeled sinful, but also in remaking the people who have actually sinned and suffered distortion. The double strategy of renaming and remaking, rooted in the commitment to both the outcast and the sinner, to the victim and to the perpetrator, is the proper background against which an adequate notion of sin as exclusion can emerge, Fulf says. Therefore, Grantham Church, we need to be clear about this. Jesus' idea of inclusion isn't about disregarding sin, rebranding sin, or being indifferent toward sin. Instead, it's about everyone coming as you are by God's grace through faith, that should sound familiar, so that you can be included in forgiveness, given a new identity in Christ, and become part of his body, the church. Before we talk more about this inclusive love of God in Christ, let's think about where the exceptionalism and exclusion that Jesus confronted in the Pharisees was coming from. We could call this codified exclusion and prophetic visions. The Mosaic law actually demanded that Israel exclude foreigners and separate themselves from their pagan neighbors, Jewish lawbreakers and those considered unclean. Otherwise, the Lord's people would forsake him, would worship idols and bring judgment on the nation. And we need to understand, as the Apostle Paul did, and he wrote so much about, the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was to show that we can't keep the law. It was also to point us to a savior that we needed who could perfectly obey it without any cultural conditioning, without being bound by our own society and culture of the times, and without being clouded by our own sinful perspectives. And the attribution that we give to it is God through the law truly is accommodating himself to us. We see that in the Mosaic Law, but we also see that through the prophets, these seers into God's good future, they challenged Israel's tribalism. They called them to repent of their exceptionalism and embrace God's desire for all nations to know and worship Him. We, we don't see this any clearer than we do in the book of Jonah. When Jonah, a prophet of God, is called to go to their enemies, Israel's enemies, who were seen as terrorists. You remember at the end of that story, Jonah said, this is why I didn't want to go because I knew that you were a compassionate God, that you were long-suffering and that you like to forgive people. We hear in Hosea 6, 6 and in Micah 4, 1 through 5 and in Isaiah 56, 3 through 8. You remember this is the passage where Isaiah says, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now that ought to sound familiar to you New Testament folks. Who said that? Jesus said that when he came into the temple to shut the place down. Because the temple was not that. Generations later, it still had not realized Isaiah's vision, God's vision for his people and for the nations. It wasn't realized by the time of Jesus. In fact, here's what the temple courts actually looked like in the first century. 
Look in the center there, you can see the inner courts where we had the Holy of Holies, the holy place as it was known, the court for Jewish women. But look in the outer court, you'll see the court of the Gentiles. This is where the Gentile worshipers of Yahweh or folks coming to see one of the seven wonders of the world could take a selfie. You should know this, along the perimeter of the dividing wall was this inscription separating the court of the Gentiles from the holy place. It read this, no foreigner is to go beyond this barrier of the temple. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. understand why Jesus was a little upset. Anthony Bourdain, some of you may be familiar with him, the show Parts Unknown, was once quoted as saying, the wall, an absurd, tragic, almost metaphoric, but all too real expression of humanity's failure and depravity. He was speaking of the Berlin Wall but that can apply to all walls. Again, he said the wall, an absurd, tragic, almost metaphoric, but all too real expression of humanity's failure and depravity. And of course, Jesus understood this when he quoted Isaiah saying, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, all people. That is, I've come to tear down these walls. I come to tell you that God loves this world so much that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life, life to the full. Think about this work of Jesus and this wall here separating who is in and who is out when you hear these familiar words from the apostle Paul. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, the Messiah, Paul said, has made things up between us so that we're now together on this, both non-Jewish outsiders and Jewish insiders. He tore down the wall we used to keep each other at a distance. The New International Version says, destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. This is what Jesus has done. He repealed the law code that had become so clogged with fine print and footnotes, 613 laws to be exact, that it hindered more than it helped. Then he started over. Instead of continuing with two groups of people separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, he created a new kind of human being, a fresh start for everybody. So this is what Jesus has done. But unfortunately, we often participate in the building up of walls that Jesus has done away with on the cross. You might wonder, how so? How do we do that? What does that look like today? What sort of conditions create exceptionalism? This we think we're better that leads to exclusion. Here are a few things that come to mind. I won't spend a great deal of time on these, but I think you'll get the point. Conditions that create exceptionalism. Isolation, sectarianism, and segregation. It's interesting, Jesus believed in holiness, Jesus was very Jewish, he was very religious, but he didn't side with the pharisaical way of holiness, right, who were among the people but kept people out of the kingdom. He also didn't side with the Essenes, that little lesser known sect who 
separated themselves, went out in the desert and kept themselves pure that way. You know, Jesus had his own way, maybe a third way, of being among the people, of seeking holiness and throwing wide the gate for all people into the kingdom. So it looks like some of those things, idolizing your views and preferences and positions. We call them sacred cows in the church if you didn't know that. Or myths that glorify and or deify our group. And so we tell stories about how God was supernaturally with us. Folks, all empires do that. America is not unique in it. And we see this in conditions like fear and hostility toward differences taking the us versus them approach or minimizing or being willfully ignorant of our own sins and having, of course, a tribalistic view of God that God is for us and against everyone else. All of these things create conditions that lead to exceptionalism, that lead to exclusion. But if we look to the God revealed in Jesus, or as we say at Grantham, the God who looks like Jesus we will see a God who is much more generous, compassionate, merciful, loving, welcoming, and inclusive than that which we see from many who claim his name today. Here are just a few examples of God's inclusive love as seen in the Gospels. We see this from the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew, remember, a tax collector himself, mentions a genealogy of Jesus, in of which, which was totally not customary, includes five women. And a couple of those women would be Rahab, who herself was a prostitute, do you remember? In Jericho, letting the spies in. And then Ruth, a Moabite, also someone that Israel was not to mix and mingle with. In the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah, or like in Mark 7, Jesus honors the faith of a Canaanite woman, the Syrophoenician woman. In John 4, Jesus shares the gospel with a Samaritan woman at a well. That looked shady, but Jesus did it. Mark 10, Jesus welcomes children and affirms them. Luke 4, Jesus praises the faith of Naaman in his hometown sermon at Nazareth. And it almost gets him thrown off a cliff because he praises the faith of a Gentile and hints at the idea that he is the Messiah and Messiah has come for those folks too. Luke 7, Jesus praises the faith of a Roman centurion, the ultimate enemies of the Israelites, unclean people of violence, persecutors and oppressors of the people. Luke 8, Jesus included women as his close disciples. In fact, they, they sustained and provided for his ministry. If it wasn't for the women, this wouldn't have happened. Luke 17, Jesus touches and heals the unclean. Luke 23, Jesus welcomes a criminal into the kingdom. Remember, on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Again, folks, this is the inclusive love of Jesus. And it's through Christ's work on the cross and his inclusive kingdom that this has been established. Let's return to Ephesians chapter two. Look what Paul said. Christ brought us together through his death on the cross. The cross got us to embrace, and that was the end of the hostility. Christ came and preached peace to the outsiders and peace to us insiders. He treated us as equals, and so he made us equals. Through him we both share the same spirit and have equal access to the Father. Verse 19, that's plain enough, isn't it? 
I love Eugene Peterson's translation. That's plain enough, isn't it? You're no longer wandering exiles. The kingdom of faith is now your home country. You're no longer strangers. You're no longer outsiders. You belong here with as much right to the name Christian as anyone. God is building a home, Paul said. He's using us all, irrespective of how we got here. This is what he's building. He used the apostles and the prophets for the foundation. Now he's using you, fitting you in brick by brick, stone by stone with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone that holds it all together. We see it taking shape day after day. Paul said, a holy temple built by God, all of us built into it, a temple in which God is quite at home. Folks, this is the house that the Lord loves. Where all are equal at the foot of the cross. Tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, soldiers, it doesn't matter who you are. The Lord says, come. The Lord says to you, come. To help us reflect and respond on this message, I wanna do something different this morning. Some of you will call Lectio Divina. It's where we read the scriptures. We, we read it, we reflect upon it. We listen to the voice of God and we respond. And I wanna do that through Visio Divina, which we've done here at Grantham, where instead of the scriptures, we use art, a work of art to reflect on what God is saying to us and to respond. Visio Divina simply means divine seeing. We wanna encounter God through art and prayer. I'm about to show you a painting by a German priest named Sigurd Coder, which was inspired by Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners. Settle in, if you would. Set aside any distractions. You may put your Bible away if you want or your smartphone. And let's get comfortable. And I'm gonna guide us through this spiritual exercise. Let's begin by closing our eyes. Just do that where you are. Close your eyes. And I want us to take some slow, deep breaths. In through the nose and out through the mouth. Do that. Focus on your breathing. You may even say these words as you breathe in. Lord Jesus, help me to see. Lord Jesus, help me to see. Now open your eyes and gaze upon the painting that's on the screens. Notice the colors, the details, both in the foreground and the background as well. Once you've visually canvassed the artwork, note where the Holy Spirit is drawing your eyes and your attention in this painting. I want you to meditate on that part of the picture that has drawn your attention. How is God speaking to you? Why do you think the Spirit is drawing your attention to this particular part 
there's something that connects you to the story? Do you sense an invitation? Can you see yourself at this table? As you keep looking at the the painting there, embrace the feelings and the emotions that come. And be mindful. What word describes your inner stirring as you embrace this feeling? Allow God's Spirit to meet you there and speak to you. Now that you've listened to God, what, what might your response be to his voice? What do you want to say to him in a short, simple prayer? Would you speak that to him now? Finally, since words are never sufficient in expressing ourselves and communing with God, let's enter into a moment of silence. And let's just sit in the presence of God together. Lord Jesus, thank you for identifying with each of us. Help us to realize, Lord, that we are all sinners. And to see that the door is open to all of us. Lord, change us through that love. Change us through that grace so that we might embrace others as you embrace us. The churches we've been doing each week in this series, would you join me in this responsive prayer? Your ways, O God, are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We seek God's ways. Lord, move us from exceptionalism, favoritism, 
and tribal thinking to your radical inclusion. As we walk with Christ on this Lenten journey, let us see your way more clearly and follow your way more faithfully. Amen.